Hello, you're listening to The Witness Podcast. I'm Carissa Lee and I'm here with Alison Crogan. Hello. We're here without Rob, unfortunately. He's a bit under the weather, but that's okay. We shall power on. Today, we're going to be talking about an article I've got coming up looking at the informed reviewer and the importance of doing a bit of research before you write about some stuff, you know. Basically, the whole thing about criticism and what it is. Why did you want to write this essay in the first place, Carissa? It's kind of a cheeky thing because I happen to be working on a review analysis in my thesis, so that kind of worked out well. And just looking at how it's really important to have someone who's a bit more in the know about marginalised voices in particular, mm-hmm. like having a, a white fella write about an Indigenous woman or just sort of looking at people in a community that they might not necessarily have had a lot of exposure with. Sometimes it can be a bit evident in the way that they're writing about these things, which is problematic because it doesn't necessarily fit into the white Eurocentric template of what a performance is supposed to be. And if it doesn't fit that format, then they think there's something wrong with it. So I think it's interesting to know what you're writing about and know that sometimes these things are a bit more journey-oriented than result-oriented, like a lot of English plays can be. Australian criticism has been almost all white and mainly male ever since it sort of started. Mm. There's been some wonderful exceptions like Catherine Brisbane who Mm. basically lit a fire under Australian criticism in the 70s by describing what was going on then. Yeah. Obviously, you know, hashtag not all critics. But (laughs) but, but it's been the case for a long time. It's reflected in our media. It's a white media. Yeah. And that inevitably inflects how things are, particularly in, a, in an evaluative thing like criticism, it shapes how we see things. Yeah. I mean, I'm white, I come out of a white education, so I'm extremely well-read in a whole lot of Western European, not only Western European, some Eastern European, and American literature and work, but, you know, I don't know much about Chinese theatre, which is a tradition that goes back it's older than Greek theatre, so on and so forth. I mean, the art itself and performance is such a, a human thing that has existed in every culture that there is. So why should such a tiny part of it be the dominant kind of way we judge things? You know, if it's a play that doesn't have a like certain amount of acts or a beginning, a middle and an end, and it doesn't sort of follow, yeah, that kind of construct dramaturgically mob are a bit more used to that does seem to be the way that they don't necessarily see it as something different they see it as something wrong or not really structured and I think that yeah they don't really have a lot to compare it to if they haven't seen that kind of yeah. diverse theatre. Though mind you it's a great way of marginalising experimental English-speaking playwrights as well. Yeah, <laughs> so, true. Yeah. I mean, you know, like sometimes I've thought that people review as if the 20th century didn't happen with all those experiments of, you know, not having the three-act play and yeah. you know, not having the well-made play or whatever, which has resulted in a lot of really interesting writing. But Yeah, definitely. And uh, the other thing about that is an awful lot of that work actually came from different Indigenous people. The, the impetus for that and a lot of in, impetus behind modernist art was for artists going to Africa and looking at what people were making there and going, gosh, that's amazing. Even though I don't necessarily agree with the fact that it was done by a white man, like Peter Brook doing the Mahabharata and sort of investigating that way of performance and letting it be as epic as it needed to be, remaining true to the construct, I think that's a great insight because it seems as though... In order for some critics to accept it, it needs to be validated 
through being written by a white person or being facilitated by a white person and it's it's problematic it's I mean it's nice that there's a bit of a window there but at the same time it does seem like there has to be a kind of borrowing from a white person in order for them to get it you know it needs the stamp of approval from a white person. I, I mean, that's just how colonial societies structure themselves. I assume you've read Orientalism, like Edward Said's book, yeah. where he talks about how colonialism, as much as taking over land and the resources of a country, it's about knowledge. Mm. Uh, he uses a great example of Napoleon going to Egypt with not only soldiers but archaeologists and linguists and historians because owning the culture, bringing it back to Europe and making it theirs was as much part of the strategy of invasion and ownership yeah. as anything else. And, and obviously this has happened here with your mob and it's happened in every country that's been colonised mm. and that still remains the case today. It's almost like a kind of anthropologist approach to theatre. Like there's this kind of idea that this, this and this is the authentic of this particular culture and we're going to use these bits that work and just kind of smush them together. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of invading, taking it back and making it their own, which is not ideal because then it, it kind of lends to this misrepresentation of that mob. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time white reviewers cater to that because they maybe they don't necessarily do the research and have a look at what to compare it to or to try and have a look. They just sort of take it as the present moment of what they've seen, what it means to them and how it fits or doesn't fit into that construct that they're used to. And a lot of the time white writers in particular when they're writing about an, you know, quote unquote other they do write it in a white audience-friendly manner and therefore people kind of take that on as the representation, that's what this race must be. And it's a bit of a worry because sometimes, it, you know, when you've got that kind of responsibility in the hands of someone who doesn't have that relational accountability, as Sean Wilson calls it, um, then there's no real consequence if they fuck it up pretty yeah. much. Well, what you yeah. have is the critic as authority, mm. which is a model. I mean, as critics, we're very privileged audience members. I mean, we go and we get to write down what we think about a particular show. So that's the case. But yeah. ever since I started reviewing, I found the whole idea of the authority. Mm. I remember as a young reviewer being at something in Adelaide, I can't remember what it was, where Leonard Raddick, who was then the age at theatre reviewer for like 300 years, and <laughs> he was saying how he was there to judge. And it was quite clear that what he meant was that he judged a particular show and he decided whether it was good or not. And I was there going, I don't think that about yeah. <laughs> I was like, no. It was when I began to, oh, you know, no, it's, it's not a judgment. I mean, obviously we, we make judgments because yeah. we do. We're different people. We have different tastes. We make judgments about whether things work or not and that's part of the call of being a critic. But it's a part of a conversation. You know? Yeah, definitely. And it's certainly not the final statement yeah. on any work you do. Yeah, and that's one thing I've been finding in my research as well is what makes a good critic isn't necessarily saying, okay, this, this and this, this is what happened in the end particularly if they're about marginalised stories or things that are part of a bigger problem, they need to say, okay, what now? Yeah. Like what's the conversation that's going to continue after this beyond the conversation you might have at the bar or in the car on the way home? It, there needs to be some kind of social change. Like, um, and I, I say it all the time and it's probably cliched now, but I believe that when you go see a show, you can't be the same as you were when you went in. You need to be affected somehow and it needs to change you in some way. 
I, I know it could be a bit of an idealistic approach too. <laughs> well, otherwise, what's the point? Well, yeah, <laughs> in I mean, a way, like, yeah, yeah, it's, know, yeah, it's good to be entertained. You could be more happy when you leave. That's cool. But when it comes to stories that are so important and are trying to show the cracks in our society and the problems in our world, it is up to us as viewers to be more than just passive presences. We should just be able to think of how we can start those really hard conversations and how we can change our lives to make these things a little better. Now that we're actually educated, we don't have the option of ignorance once we've seen these stories take place on stage. Well, that's the theory anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's. I've been thinking a bit lately about, actually I said it to another critic on Facebook last week where mm. he was feeling very despairing. Either it matters or it doesn't. Yeah. And if it matters and if we're critics, our job is to talk about it as if it matters. Yeah. And I think an awful lot of, and what does that mean? But an awful lot of criticism just talks about it as a consumer, mm. you know, and there's a place for consumer guides. Obviously there is. I mean, people just sometimes just want to see something and they want to know whether it's really dreadful or not or is it five stars or whatever. I've always hated stars. Yeah. And there is a place for that. But beyond that, there is a thing about why are people making this work? And as you say, particularly with marginalised people, there are particular reasons why people are making that work and mm. surely people should be aware of those reasons and interested in them. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's a question that I see, Melissa Lukashenko, she's this amazing Indigenous author, mm -hmm. she was at this Fanon conference I was at and she said, you got to ask yourself, do I need to be telling this story mm -hmm. and why am I telling this story? Yeah. I think if you can answer those questions in a way that shows there's an integrity behind what you're doing, then I think you're on the right path. But if you can't honestly answer those questions in a way that you think that shows that you're doing the right thing, then maybe don't. And I think it's the same with reviewing. You need to kind of look at these things in that way as well. You need yeah. to, it's like, I'm not just doing this to sell a play. I'm not just doing this to, you know, have a whinge about something. I'm trying to inform people and let them know about how this story fits into a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, especially working with you guys, this importance of actually taking the time to have a bit of a Google before you <laughs> make a judgment. <laughs> like there was a show that I saw that was rubbed me the wrong way and I I did have a bit of a whinge to you about it, but you were like, okay, cool, just have a look at their work and sort of get acquainted and make sure you're making the right judgment here, which is very – I'm glad that I did. <laughs> so I think, yeah, a lot of reviewers could probably benefit from doing that. Yeah, well, we. I mean, I think – those things have changed so markedly in the last even five years in media. So the whole thing is in flux and, you know, a lot of people keep being very negative and not for no reason about mm. the future of criticism. You know, you need art to criticise. Well, <laughs> and yeah. so if you're feeling de depressed about the future of performance in Australia, I feel quite optimistic, but a lot of people feel a bit it's a struggle, let's face it. Yeah. There are lots of reasons to feel, yeah, depressed about the possibility of critical conversation, like a proper conversation that's not pressured, that has some space around it, that has some generosity in it perhaps. Yeah. Generosity of thought and also, I don't know, I mean I feel so strongly that voices have to be invited in. Yeah. It's so important if it's going to matter at all. I mean, I'm I'm white, I'm as white as white, and I'm just kind of over that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, I love my culture and everything, but, boy, there are terrible things about it. You can feel it thinning. You can feel how 
the same things have been said over and over again. Yeah, definitely. And you can feel where energies are. Mm. And you can also see at this particular point in history how the resistances are coming to these emerging voices. Yeah. You see both these things happening at once. Yeah. There's um, like a generational struggle there. Like there's yeah. – like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression I got about the critical landscape of Australia was that it was very predominantly white and male – and, you know, now that we've got more diverse voices and more female voices coming up and wanting to be part of that conversation, it does feel like there's a struggle there. There's like, no, this isn't what critique is supposed to be. And and then it feels like but we're trying to make it mean something different. And it does feel a little bit like sometimes people don't agree with that. They think it's meant to be more straightforward. Well, the authority, capital A, authority, yeah. quote marks, et cetera, is supposed to be a white male voice. I mean, sometimes I think of my mother, you know, she, she's the kind of person who loves the patriarch. You know? Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes her feel safe. And I think mm. there is still that thing of the white male voice of authority. It's not a necessarily a conscious thing, but it's there as the stamp of this is the real thing. Yeah. This is the authentic thing. This is the quality thing. That's why we always default back to that. Like it didn't take very long. For a while there in the early 2000s, there were a whole lot of really interesting voices, among them some male voices, but, you know, young critics emerging, lots of women, and just watching that, but just go back to the same default, you know, suddenly all the plum jobs in Australian criticism are all white men again. Yeah. And it's like, ah. Oh. That's how it works, unless you're actively fighting against it. And obviously at Witness is one of the things that we hope to open a space for is just some other voices. Well, yeah, with um, these fellas, like these white blokes that write for these things, how qualified, do, do they have to have degrees? Do they have to? There's never been any qualification for theatre critics. Wow, that's... And usually in Australia they've been, like Leonard Raddick was actually a leader writer for The Age. So he was just interested in theatre. Mm. So that's how he got the job. And that I got the job because I was interested in theatre. Mm. Just that, you know, like you happen to, you like going to the theatre. So it could be anyone. Yeah. And you're in the right place at the right time or whatever. Now there's something not unhealthy about that. I'm all for the democratic voice too. Do you have to be qualified to have a response to something? I don't believe that. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because I mean, you know, yeah, we found that with our live nights as well that yeah, you know, the responses there, they see things that sometimes we've missed because we're so sort of bunked down in everything that we've seen before. I mean, art is there for everybody. So, you know, you come along and, and, and you learn by talking about it. That's how I've learned. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and the more you see, the more you begin to make connections and the more you begin, you know, and that's just available to anyone. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that from the bottom of my heart. I mean, it's one reason I liked Richard Gill so much, the wonderful musician and artistic director of VO, he was founding director of VO, he died on Sunday because he was such a kind of generous Democrat in how he invited everyone into music. And I think that about all art, it's, it's there for everyone. There'll be something for everyone in it mm. and it should be available to everyone. And, yeah. and I suppose the problem here, and, and this is where criticism plays in too, is that it's not available for everyone, either to go to or as an expression yeah it's available for some people mm. i think you know i guess yeah stuff like ticket prices kind of streamlines who can come along and that sort of thing and also the nature of the show and how it's marketed it's definitely marketed for certain people like when my brother came along to see that bangara show mm. he was there in a flanny and yeah. he, he was one of the only black fellas there and 
there were all these, you know, well-to-do mob dressed up all nice and whatever, and it just felt like, wow, do we – it's really weird. The class thing plays into it so much. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in a production of Top Girls with State Theatre back in Adelaide, when my brother came along to see that, and he was there with a couple of friends of mine, he's like, there are so many – old white people here <laughs> and I was like yeah it's apparently normal and you know we'd get people having naps in the in the audience <laughs> which right. is no reflection of the show of course but um no. well let's hope not no, yeah it was fairly, definitely fairly standard for subscription theatre yeah it seems to be the I way used to, I used to go quite a lot to places like the MTC on uh, like matinees so if I yeah. couldn't make opening night and often uh, sometimes I think opening night is not the night that you want to see a show yeah because, you know, it's opening night. It's not when you see it kind of bedded in. and Yeah, nice and kind of marinating. Uh, yeah, thing, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> Full of nerves and everything like that. So sometimes I'd go to matinees. I, I, I was probably about 40 at the time. I would often be the youngest person there. Spring chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a kind of theatre that's for, yeah, a white middle class audience with the money who can afford those tickets. yeah. And so the theatre is then directed towards those people because they can afford those tickets. Yeah. And the reason it's like that is because there's not enough funding. Mm. I mean, there's other reasons. It's not only about money. Yeah. It's a structural thing. Yeah, suppose, definitely. Makes it tricky to balance it out. It does. Yeah. yeah. As long as theatre is getting seen, I think that's the important part. But it just needs to be seen by more people, like more diverse people. Yeah. I mean, I think there's beginning to be a bit of a shift. Yeah. What do you think? I reckon especially seeing something like like that production of Snow White, it was so radical and dark and awesome and there was such a weird bunch of people in the audience. Like there were kids there and I was like, oh, God, okay, let's see how this goes. (laughs) You know, but there were young people and there were goths and it was fantastic. It was like I was there with my people. And, you know, seeing that horror show as well, that was really cool. Definitely seeing the programming has been really great. This is at the Art Centre, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, allowed think, for a really diverse one. I think they quite consciously trying to, well, I think everywhere is trying to get audiences that are under 70 in because if they don't, they'll die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll lose their subscription. Yeah. Mob. I mean, House is pretty good with that too. Like they're, yeah. They're really great with their programming and having a, a good range of different stuff, like having their classics as well as having stuff that's a bit new and a bit different. And the diverse casting, just, oh, I love it. It's fantastic. It really makes a difference. I think it does. I mean, it makes a difference for me watching it because what I don't get, and I think I I mentioned we were talking earlier and I was talking about wonderful Kip Williams' production of Love and Information by Carol Churchill, which is such a fabulous play and it was a really beautiful production and a, a diverse cast which means, yeah, there was more than one brown person in it. And given that play, which is a whole lot of tiny little scenes, which could be played in all sorts of different ways, it was kind of a modular play that the director could then assemble. But what I found when I watch productions like that is that there isn't that weird disconnect Mm. between inside the theatre and outside the theatre. Like it's a problem when you're inside the theatre and the people that you're seeing on stage are not the same mm-hmm. as the people when you walk out and you walk into the street. Yeah. I mean, that's still more common than not. Oh, definitely. People always underestimate how much class plays in Australia because it's a huge thing as, as much as race. Definitely, yeah. And well, they all intersect, as we know. And theatre is a middle-class bastion, let's face it. It is a middle-class thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's expensive to make unless you pay people nothing, which is 
how people make independent theatre because they're prepared to work for nothing and artists are always subsidising the arts. It's Yeah, it's kind of nice, this idea that more people create a theatre that's set in Australia that actually looks like Australia with, you know, the diversity that we have here. But I like this idea that, yeah, going inside the theatre, it looks nothing like what it looks like out in the world and it's just kind of like, well, that's that's awful, that's dishonest. It's also a fantasy. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you want to go there and see something different. Mm. It makes you wonder whose fantasy it is. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah what is this fantasy? <laughs> hey, what have we walked into? So what do we want from criticism? I want informed reviewers, people that use the Google. That would be good. More um, than the Google. Read books. Read some books. Go see some shows. Go see some shows that aren't just white. Go watch outside of your usual viewership. Me too. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> Go see some marginalised people plays. Go see some feminist plays. Be good. Yeah. Well, I think we'll finish up there. Nice. Okay. You've been listening to The Witness Podcast. If you would like to read this article that's going to be going into this idea of the informed reviewer a little further, you would need to subscribe. So, yeah, get on to subscribing with us. We need it to keep this thing going. I'm Carissa Lee. Uh, this is recorded by Ben Keane. And I'm here with Alison Crogan. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.